Hi, and welcome to Eat My Words, a twice-monthly Arizona Highways podcast that celebrates Arizona's unique culinary culture. I'm your host, Kelly Vaughn. On this, the very first episode of Eat My Words, it's my pleasure to introduce you to Chef Brett Vibber of Wild Arizona Cuisine. Chef, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. So, so many people know you from Cartwrights in Cave Uh Creek, and you closed that restaurant fairly recently. What can you tell me about your decision to move on from that? You know, after a few years of owning it, and I'd worked there before I owned it as as the head chef, uh, but after a few years, I'd come to realize that really loved small, intimate parties or small, intimate gatherings where because of how we produce our food and because of how we source our food, you know, 185 seats twice a night, I felt like I, I couldn't get the message quite across to everyone there. And so basically by at the end of the day, it was, it was too big for, for what I wanted to be doing. And we were in the process of moving ourselves onto five acres in New River and close down the restaurant and focus on, you know, the land and fencing and watering and all the things that come with it. So it was at that point that we closed car rights down with the idea of opening a new like I said, quite small restaurant when we move into a new brick and mortar. Uh, 2020 was fun. So it basically delayed, you know, everything that everyone was doing, I think, by about a year. You know, in the meantime, different things have happened, but uh, we'll look to try and get the new one open exactly a year after we'd planned October 2020. So we're loose focused on October of 2021. There's still uh, obviously quite the amount of uh, remnants dragging uh, from 2020 into 2021. So I can appreciate that. And, you know, with nature being my boss at the end of the day, I've learned over the course of the years really not to fight things that that don't feel natural. And, you know, it would have felt really uncomfortable during the pandemic to open a new restaurant. Uh, Almost selfish is what is kind of how the the three of us owners of Wild looked at it was, uh, you know, we're in this position of being able to help other people through the pandemic rather than selfishly open a new restaurant to you know i don't i don't know stroke your massive ego or something something of that it's it's so much different to me for that so i'm I'm not really in a huge hurry because of all the other projects we have going on right now fantastic so the new endeavor is wild arizona cuisine correct yep sure and is and you're kind of i don't want to say practicing that but it seems like you're cultivating that out at mortimer farms now can you tell me a little more about that yeah, so in September, I've I've used Mortimer Farms as a, you know, fruit, vegetable, beef, pork, egg, you know, all kinds of farm ingredient resource for years and years and years. And they called us in September and they didn't know how uh, their pumpkin festival was going to go and if it was going to be busy or if it wasn't going to be busy. And, and if it was going to be busy, could we come and lend a hand and really start tapping into, they have all these beautiful products and they weren't quite getting it out the way they wanted to or the way they always dreamed or envisioned without a culinary team there. So again, we, we happen to be in a unique opportunity where we're just, you know, doing pop-ups and caterings and things like that at that point in time and so we went up and and worked the festival for them and just you know we kind of worked through the festival i think all of us you know realized that we have a lot of these dreams that are that are aligned with one another but they have a farm and, and all this beautiful product and no chefs on this hand and we have a handful of chefs that really thrive on being you know highly adaptable to different situations and different kinds of cooking different kinds of cuisine as long as the basis is that the quality and the food comes from the best possible local place that we can possibly find it. So as the festival ended, uh, you know, we we kind of struck up a deal and agreement to continue on doing all their banquets, all their event food, weddings. They do a lot of weddings every year and, and just anything that's going on with food and, and beverage up there, we're 
taking care of it through the eyes of chefs now uh rather than you know hiring hiring out and just hoping that random people would do that food just as it's 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 really more deeper than that that you kind of have to have that formal cooking background before you can you know start breaking rules or twisting rules or adapting to new ways of doing things so i, I think it's the most fun project that i've done in a long time fantastic so you know you mentioned earlier that you approach you know your boss as being nature and we scheduled this interview for later in the morning because you were out foraging for morals Yep. When did you get into the practice of foraging and what can you tell our listeners about it? I think I've probably been doing it on some level most most of my life. I grew up on these Arizona back roads and my heroes or my mentors or my idols, if you will, were never were never chefs or uh, you know, this industry driven. My my heroes and idols were people I saw in Arizona highways, to be quite honest, and Louis Lamour and Zane Gray and you know, people that were out living their adventures and living their dreams and making making that part of their life. So I was fortunate enough to have parents that still are extremely outdoors oriented. So, you know, our weekends were filled with trips up to the Mogollon Rim and Horton Creek and Tonto Creek. And, you know, there's watercrests and berries there and dovetailed right into Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts, uh, you know, until right through middle school. And, you know, that lent me, you know, even a larger scope of one, learning about indigenous culture, but two, learning about, you know, all the wild foods that Arizona has to offer. It's a beautifully unique place uh, geographically because of, you know, this split that we have right through the center of our state. And you've got the Sonoran Desert to tap on things that no one else in literally in the world can get. And, and but I also have the glory and the blessings of having the mushrooms that they find in Canada or in the Pacific Northwest and fiddlehead ferns and acorns and walnuts. And the list is endless and just goes on forever. I'm constantly continuing to learn. And I hope I, I always feel that way because otherwise things start getting boring, but I, I'd say on, on some form or another, I, I've been doing it my whole life. It, it became, when I left Chicago, I was born and raised in Tempe, but as luck and career would have it, I ended up in Chicago as my last stint before I came back to Arizona seven years ago. And when I came back to Arizona seven years ago, I'd never really realized how much I missed Arizona while I was gone. I missed the mountains. I missed the desert. I missed the forest. I missed the lakes, the rivers. I missed everything about growing up. So it was at that point where I was really getting close to opening my own restaurant and, and developing my own concept where I was really came to the conclusion was I really want to try and push what what could be Arizona cuisine or what should be Arizona cuisine because you go anywhere else and, and I've been fortunate enough to you know travel the world cooking you go anywhere else and especially if places that are, you know, maybe that the culture has been more established for a longer period of time, but you go to Italy and every region has its own cuisine. You know, you're going to get something different in the Ro in the region of Rome than you would in the Emilia Romagna as you would in, you know, Milan or Como or Bellagio. I always thought that, you know, there's a lot of awesome restaurants in Phoenix and there's a lot of really talented chefs in Arizona, but how come no one serves wild raspberries or why would you buy why would you buy, you know, acorns or why would you buy mesquite flour if you could just make it yourself? So that that was really jumped kind of in, you know, seven years ago so on that push of, you know, we, we know all this stuff and this is the stuff we really love. And this is the food and the culture that we're really into. Why why not have this, the food speak its stories through that? Right. And, you know, I think that so many people classify Arizona cuisine simply as being that Sonoran Mexican style cuisine. I think of it one way and then, you know, you see like what you said in nachos with jalapenos and things like that, where it's just uh, not, not well representative. 
Right. So how, how would you classify Arizona cuisine? Well, I hope that it's still being classified, but I think it's at this point for me, it's, I guess, a modern scope on historical and historically important indigenous ingredients and, and, and wild ingredients where, you know, I love, I love serving food that's come from close to one another. So like venison in the summertime with morel mushrooms and wild berry compote seems to really make sense to me. And, and that's how I want to serve food out to people where you're not, you're changing with these hyper seasons and, you know, this morel season that we're on right now, we're, we're, we're up here every single day. And, but it, it starts one day and it just ends, you know, like clockwork within within weeks of itself and and you're just constantly on the move and, and I think that's what makes the food and the cuisine so exciting is that it's not necessarily defined in dishes but rather than ingredients in the seasons that we go through so quickly where that's why I like a really small group of people because there might be stuff on our tasting menus like we did at Cartwrights you know we have you have uh, an omakase style tasting menu where it's never written down and that just means literally in Japanese to trust the chef and so I love serving tasting menus that way because you can't really commit to you know printing something out and saying like oh this is the menu we're gonna have for a week when when you're gathering these things by the morning and by the day so it, it makes it makes for exciting stories and, and, and for me an exciting way to serve food. Right. And I, and I like the story of your menu development and the development of all of your dishes. I guess I want to get back to foraging for a moment. Do you have any advice for people who want to get into the practice of foraging? Yeah, I get asked that quite often. There's a couple of things that are really super easy and people, excuse me, will, will notice or, you know, have this light bulb moment uh, when they start foraging around with me a couple of times, like, oh my gosh, I've seen this my whole life. I never knew you could eat it. You know, there's, there's certain things that I think take time to develop. Now, mushrooms has been, was the last thing that I ever introduced into my foraging because it's so complex. It's so scientific. It's so volatile. If you're, there's not very many self-taught mushroom foragers where, you know, you've got things on the mushroom side, like the Arizona Mushroom Society, where you can join the Arizona Mushroom Society, uh, you know, through Facebook or through their webpage and, and see and start having, you know, visuals on on forums and things like that or go to forays when people go back to meeting up in whatever size groups begin to meet back up in but that was a good way and is a good way for learning mushrooms i always tell people you got to learn mushroom foraging from a mushroom forager it's got to be a hands-on a hands-on training where there's other things like i said like prickly pears and acorns where you're not you're not going to eat acorns off one tree and then be poisoned by acorns off of another tree one book that i I think I've probably bought and given away more than any other book in my entire life is Southwest Foraging by John Slattery. Okay. It's a perfect, straightforward, who, what, where, when, why, how foraging book. And it's just the Southwest. And, and he's out of, he's based out of Tucson. I've been fortunate enough to, you know, be in and around that, you know, what he's been doing for quite some time and, you know, watch him from afar. And just from, you know, you can get some foraging books that start reading like math books after a while. And you're like, oh my gosh, it's half of a page in Latin. And in this book is so different. It, it's like foraging for dummies with, with, you know, without being rude to anyone and calling you a dummy. But I still refer, it's sitting on the dashboard of my truck. I, I still refer to it all the time for one thing or another, because I, I mean, like I said, the Sonoran Desert, which you know we're right on the edge of right now is full of more flora and fauna than anywhere else in the world you just have to know what you're looking for when to look for it and, and how to use it once you do have it now as a chef and as a consumer what do you see as being the benefits of this 
locavore movement and the local movement and you know sustainable cooking and sustainable eating tons of benefits one i think that it it really promotes small business which i think it in turn promotes your whole community when we got in this rut i think of as a society over the course of time of you know the big box store or the one-stop shop and things like that we've, we've seen in the last 15 or 20 years of going back to local and going back to you know for lack of better terminology mom and pop type independent owners and small business is becoming trendy i guess for lack of a better word at this point but whatever it takes it's that's awesome because it keeps more money in your community it make it helps your community stay stronger stronger not just financially but as culture and society i think you have so much more interaction where you know i don't it's been years since i've called up cisco and, and ordered like i said a one-stop shop where i'm i'm at mark ryan's farm all the time or i see john Naughton at mountain sky farms or i see the mortimers at, at mortimer farms or you know we're with different foragers or we're gathering it ourselves or we're growing it ourselves is is much much different and in terms of how that group of individuals all act around one another it's so much different than a good business relationship with your you know cisco or shamrock or u.s food rep it's uh there's nothing that can compare to it now you mentioned you know your childhood growing up as an as an outdoors kid and now you're mm -hmm. an outdoorsman and so much so that you're getting ready to hike the entire length of the arizona trail which uh -huh. runs a little more than 800 miles from Mexico to Utah. What sure led to that decision? What's what's your motivation? Why are you doing it? I want to do it for a couple of different reasons. One, I've always wanted to do it. It's a little hard to notch out two months on a vacation for, for yourself. And so I, I thought, you know, sometime last summer, we were hosting our first Camp Wild Chef. And yeah, as I was driving up there, I thought like there wasn't a lot going on at that point in time and what if you know we could for a couple of different charities that you know are kind of near and dear to our hearts what if we could raise money and awareness for these groups of individuals by hiking the entire length of the arizona trail and turning it into not just a hike that chef did across the state on a whim but but a project of dinners and foraging along the way and different kinds of collaborations the whole way along the way and you know so we started planning it last September, I'd say. And, you know, it's it's a huge group of support behind me on this, the support crew between my business partner, Jaron, uh, you know, following me and making sure I'm getting loaded up with not only supplies, but we have it mapped out for hiking, biking and horseback. So I'll need, you know, horse gear picked up and dropped off and bike gear picked up and dropped off. And uh, it's been nice. We originally, there's only two, two month windows each year that are recommended to do it and we were shooting for this spring and we've decided because of some new sponsors that came on and basically i mean a, a couple of different things one my business partner jaron's out for a couple of months right now two years ago he suffered a really really bad case of diverticulitis and almost died from it and when he was finally able and cleared to get the final surgery covid hit and all, all of that stuff was deemed non-essential. So he finally was able to get this surgery at the beginning of March. So between the whole group, there's about between a taste of AZ and Tap That and Mezcal Carreño and some big sponsors like Cabela's that's doing all of our gear and stuff like that. All the representatives from that 
felt like this is best, you know, with this project, we want to do it right. We want to do it proper. So let's see, let's shoot for the later window in this year rather than the earlier window. And then, you know, I'd hate to do something that was one of the biggest projects of my life and, and have my best friend and business partner me miss out on it and, and watch from afar. But at the same time, I need him just as much as he's so important that that role, because of how the project is with all the different dinners and all the schedules to keep, it was also the first time I've ever planned a project like this. Mm -hmm. So like I said, I, I don't, I don't fight things nowadays. If it feels like it's not right to leave, then it, in your heart of hearts, you know, it's not right to make that decision here or there. And there's so many little things that we just said, you know, the trail's not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. I'm mentally and physically prepared to do it whenever. And the only better things can happen with, with more attention coming to it, you know, speaking on interactions like this right now and, and just getting some more hype behind it rather than feel like we're rushing into it and we can do it without Jaren. Just both, neither things are quite proper in my mind. And I'm not here to fight nature. I'm here to roll with the punches. So, so we'll look to just to hit the second window of this year rather than uh, go right now. Or people say, well, why don't you just go when Jaren gets back? And like, yeah, I'm not hiking across Arizona in, in May, June and July. So, right. So again, there's there's a lot more you know that goes into it rather than just saying like okay, I got a new sleeping bag and a new pair of boots and backpack school and I'm I'm gonna hike. It's a matter of how much water we've gotten this year, snow runoff. We have support from the Forest Service in different parts, and they predicted a super dry spring. And my friends that are in forest wildland firefighting are are really nervous about this year, and they kind of had a little smile when I told them I was gonna hold off on it. So you know, it seems like on all facets, like okay. We just chill on it a little bit and still little parts of, you know, COVID are still rearing their ugly heads with it. And you've got last or the first two miles in from uh, Mexico still getting shut down all the time and border wall stuff uh, really m messed with all that. And like I said, if I'm going to do it, I want to do it right. I want to do the whole thing. I don't want to get done with it at the end and say like, ah, I really wish I could have done those first two miles, but oh, didn't. So I feel I feel super positive about it. And it just gives us more time again to be to be more organized and prepared and you know, that's the old boy scout motto that's super simple but uh but easy to live by if you can is is be prepared and if i can be more prepared and i can do it better then there's then there's no you know hesitation and holding up on it for a little bit sure so what kind what kind of food are you going to pack in your pack for those first you know few days on the trail so i have the full intention of not carrying any cooking equipment and i'll, I'll only carry dry food with me so it's a uh, <laughs> it's a lot of granola type based things and one cool trick that I always keep with me and I learned from the Tohonos some time ago from the Button family that owns Ramona Farms down in Sacaton. I carry corn pinol with me, so a toasted corn flour with me all the time and you can shake it into your bottle of water and get a lot of nutrients that way and calories out on the trail and it weighs obviously next to nothing and, and I'm already I already have water with me. So I, I typically I mean that's actually all I've had today so far to eat is you know, we're up, up and gone early and, you know, it's not a heavy, it's not a heavy thing, but you're getting your calories and you're getting your nutrients. And so a lot of pinot, a lot of granola, anything, you know, we have a lot of stuff that we even preserve from, from different seasons and in gardens and farm stuff where, you know, I have, I think I probably have about a year's worth of zucchini chips after everything being closed down for last year and not having anywhere to sell any, any vegetables, be it through food or farmer's markets or anything like that. Freezer bags upon freezer bags full of, of zucchini chips. So just as simple as I possibly can. I know I see, I'll see Jaron in the, in the road support team every, I don't think I go more than like a five day stretch without seeing them. So I can plan to have a somewhat decent meal. And what's really cool is everywhere that it hits, it doesn't have to be a, it doesn't have to be a fancy place, but I love 
I love good restaurants in small towns, especially in like background country towns of Arizona, Colorado, Utah, and things like that. Texas, New Mexico. There's so much, so many good restaurants that they don't, they're not in the limelight and they don't care about that kind of stuff. And it's local or indigenous ingredients or, you know, just super quality food. So that's, that's an exciting part for me is I always, I always like, you know, if I'm driving through Williams, like, can I find the best restaurant in Williams so that we know when we're here next time? Or what's the best breakfast place in Payson that we can stop after we're foraging in the morning? Things like that. So that that part I'm, I'm looking forward to because you start getting, you know, text and lists and comments from people that, like, when you pass through, you know, Happy Jack, you got you to gotta stop there and try their barbecue. It's the best. I swear, it doesn't look like much. But, like, and just stuff like that. Even, you know, people that are, they have trail angels all along the way, and a lot of them have places for you to stay. So many that are just excited, like, oh, we can't wait to have a chef in our house so we can cook you dinner. I'm like, I can't wait to be in your house so you can cook me dinner. So I, I, I think two, three days, four days max at a time, I can, I can get by on old wrestling cutting weight food. Great. And is is there a segment of the trail that you're most excited to explore? I would say what's kind of funny is this is just it's going to be connecting just a number of dots for me as I've gone along, you know, as I've tra- plotted out this whole this whole Arizona trail and, uh, you know, the trails in which obviously there's so many that were existing that were connected to make the Arizona trail when it was made that uh, I've been on quite a bit of it just never never put it all together in one story but i think the kaibab plateau because i've mostly always been en route to the north rim and you know just hightailing it's a long drive from phoenix and just just trying to get in into the north rim or vice versa you know it's a long drive back and you know it's already going to take all day and that i've never really felt like i've absorbed between like jacob lake and the north rim that i've ever like spent time out there camping being right in the middle of it the arizona strip and the north rim of the grand canyon for me is is probably one of my more favorite places on earth uh just for the sheer reason that there's the lack of people it's just dark skies the stars the foraging the wild foods wildlife i mean not a ton of places you stumble across bison out and about so uh just the 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 north rim of the grand canyon the arizona strip is just a it's one of those spots that nature has cut off mostly and you know thank god for that river because it's naturally cut off from people that don't want to earn it i I love the grand canyon and just have a lifetime of memories hiking in and out and in and out and in and out with my dad every spring break but the north rim of the grand canyon is something something magical i mean i think it's something like only one out of a hundred people or one out of a thousand people it's some silly number sees the north rim versus the south rim like you go to the south rim it's it's like disneyland in nature and i feel like it makes me more anxious than anything when i'm in nature i want to be with be with nature so uh that that part's super super intriguing to me probably the grand canyon and on in general, my wife is jumping on with me at the south rim of the Grand Canyon. She's going to do the through hike with me and then get back to business. But I think for us, we didn't really get a honeymoon when we got married. So we're, we've just kind of constantly told ourselves that hiking through the Grand Canyon at some point will be our will be our honeymoon. So that, that whole chunk, I have, like I said, super fond memories of that part of the state anyways, where, you know, coming back 36, 37, 38 years later, that a lot of things feel full circle to me now where, you know, my boyhood adventures have turned into a job for lack of better terminology, but it's, it, does, it never feels like a job because we have so much fun doing what we're doing. I mean, I like, you know, stalking Joel Hazelton on 
uh, Instagram and seeing what he's doing because nowadays it has something to do with what we're doing. And, and you know, like <clears throat> you can you can see and be around these like-minded people that when you're around like-minded and passionate people, I think you see some real magic happen. Cooking is just one part of culture, but when you get like all these, like our circle of, you know, friends or colleagues that were around, they're not all cooks and chefs, but everyone's like-minded from farmers to fishermen to ranchers to foragers to whatever bartenders you know our our other business partner danielle goldtooth she she sees drinks just the way we see food and that for a long time was a struggle for me to have a bartender or a mixologist or a beverage manager whatever we're calling them today for a long time that was a struggle to sit like you see this food can't you pair up a drink with it or a wine with it and uh, you know i don't i don't really reach outside of arizona for beer wine or liquor anymore either because we have it all here and it's the guys in town under black in tucson they make a mesquite barrel aged whiskey well my goodness it how could anything go with our food better than that we're, we're served that with the mesquite pasta with you know local ingredients and and things of that sort where where she's she's been awesome since joining up with us and it, and it just blesses the food more than you know than just we're serving a glass of white wine from france with you know this completely unique dish it just doesn't it doesn't jive anymore right one final question for you chef what's the future of arizona cuisine in your opinion Oh, I think it's bright. I think even in the last few years, I've seen more and more local chefs getting their feelers out there and, you know, starting to maybe not as much foraging, but indigenous ingredients where I've seen a lot of people embrace like the tepary bean or, or a lot of things that, that Ramona Farms is well known for uh, south of the valley. I think I think that's just where it's all going to have to start and, and, you know, kind of percolate and grow. So I always try and look backwards rather than predict what's what could happen where I looked five years ago back and no one was doing it. You might see a prickly pear margarita at the local joint, but but now where you're seeing people actually get into and I think I think a lot of it changed with one more indigenous ingredients being available and well known. But I, I think the drink the beverage side of the industry has, has helped to change that a lot as well. Well not just with the microbreweries, but with our distilleries and with our, our wine country in Arizona, I think really helped change you know, that local look on things. Well, on that perfect bite, Chef Brett Vibber of Wild Arizona Cuisine, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Don't want to miss an episode? Make sure to subscribe. For more information about Chef Brett Vibber, search for Wild Arizona Cuisine on Facebook and Instagram. And for more information about Arizona Highways, visit ArizonaHighways.com. Until next time, eat my words. <laughs>